On today's show, Game 1 is behind the Atlanta Hawks, and Game 2 is looming on Tuesday evening up in Boston with some real urgency for the Hawks. We'll get into all of what the mood is around the team right now, as well as some mailbag questions to answer with regard to how the chances might look, what tweaks are in the offing for the Hawks, and more coming up. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1454 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Monday afternoon. And today's show, we'll be getting into everything around the Atlanta Hawks after one game in the first round series against the Boston Celtics, as well as with game two looming on Tuesday, what the Hawks might be able to do differently, uh, what their chances are, etc. Adjustments, player evaluation stuff, and more. And today's show is also brought to you by the Game Time app. Create an account right now with Game Time and use the promo code Locked On NBA for $20 off your first purchase. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed with game time. And just to pull you behind the curtain a little bit at this point in time, I had a guest lined up, and hopefully they'll be able to join me at some other point in the future, but I had to kind of pivot from that, scheduling conflicts, etc. And that means a mailbag podcast on this Monday afternoon. No real huge news. There's injury stuff in the offing. I'm recording before the injury report comes out for the Hawks on Monday. But according to Lauren Williams of the AJC, who's up in Boston, there is not a whole lot of... Uh, I guess mystery. I think Jalen Johnson was the one question as he left the game briefly on Saturday, but he seems to be all systems go for Tuesday. Again, keep that in mind when the injury report comes out, it might be somebody listed a potential, potential that we don't know about, but that's kind of the top line thought there on the Boston side. Marcus Smart returned and looked like his normal self in that game uh, in game one. Jalen Brown is kind of the only question. He has the hand finger, however you want to say that contusion that I guess opened up during the game on, on, in game one, but he was able to keep playing. He played very well. I'm sure it's a big story in Boston, but it seems like both teams still at full strength in advance of game two on Tuesday. And also, just to uh, kind of put a pin in it, the Hawks do play. It's a 7 o'clock game on Tuesday in Boston. Does that change the entire series if they were to win it or lose it? Potentially. But we'll answer your questions right now in advance of that contest. And thank you, by the way, for everyone who submitted one. I didn't really make a mailbag call, but because it's the playoffs, there's lots of attention going on around the Hawks. And I had a bevy of questions, both in my DMs, as well as on Twitter and on YouTube and everywhere else. So thanks for all the questions that I got. And uh, if I didn't answer yours today, I'm sure I will have more of those in the future. So first one comes from Oswaldo, who says, what do you think was better in the second half? And does it matter that the Hawks cut the lead so much, even though they lost the game? So I touched on this a little bit in the recap show. If you missed it, by the way, I talked about this game extensively after game one. And if you're a new listener to the podcast, welcome aboard. Hopefully you will keep joining us and subscribe to the podcast. But there is always a question about how much the, the dynamics of a game happen to change when the margin is as big as it was. The Hawks were down by 30 at halftime. And that does change things no matter what. I, you have a hard time convincing me that Boston didn't let up to some degree after halftime. That's a human nature thing. It's not me disrespecting the Hawks. I got into a conversation about this with somebody offline. Like I'm not saying the only reason the Hawks came back in the game is because Boston stopped playing as well or as hard, but I think human nature dictates that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes they were not playing as probably as crisply as they were in the first half. Also though, I want to be very clear about this. The Hawks played much better in the second half, much, much better independent of what Boston was doing. And that kind of leads you to the Hawks winning the second half decisively getting back within 12 at one point in the fourth quarter and making things legitimately interesting for a little while, even though it was never a single-digit game in the second half, the Hawks did win across the board, basically, after halftime. And yes, they were down 30 before that, but it does matter. 
the numbers were pretty jarring when you kind of see them in the first half. The Hawks had an 81 offensive rating and allowed a 137 offensive rating to the Celtics. That's a net rating of about minus 55 per 100. That's obviously just horrible. They're down 30. Not a huge surprise that the numbers are bad, but it was really ugly. I talked about that a lot on the show on Saturday. I won't repeat all of that now, but offensively, really rough. Defensively, really rough. Just an all-court disaster, basically, for the Hawks. And again, credit to Boston. They played very well in that first half as well. In the second half, the Hawks didn't score at a super high rate. In fact, they were below their usual number. They had a 112 offensive rating in the second half. That's fine against a good defense in Boston, but it's not great for this Hawks team. But they held Boston to a 76 offensive rating in the second half of the game. Boston had a 42% true shooting in the second half. That is terrible and not sustainable, honestly. But the Hawks did force a bunch of turnovers. They have more turnovers than assists allowed in the second half. That's always a good sign. They got up into Boston's ball handlers a lot more after halftime. And Boston also only had five free throw attempts in the second half. So a really strong performance across the board, even with some of that being cooled off by Boston shooting as they were hot in the first half for sure. The Hawks didn't shoot it that well on their own in the second half still, but it was better than the first half, number one. They moved the ball better, especially. They had 13 assists, four turnovers. They created better looks, I thought. The quality in watching the game tape back, I think I've watched the whole game now three times. It was stark like how much better the process was. They didn't still shoot the ball incredibly well, other than like Bogey got a little bit hot for a little bit of time in the second half, but um, they were just better across the board. They were more intentional. They executed better defensively. They moved the ball better. They didn't settle as much, etc. Now, there was a debate raging online that I went into a little bit about where the Hawks lost this game only. I want to stress only because of the shooting differential. And I don't think so. Now, I explained on the show after the game that if you view the entire box score for the full game, I did say this, the Hawks won the possession battle solidly. And that's a great thing. I talked about it on the previews with both John Corrales and Glenn Willis and Tyler Jones. The Hawks have to win the possession battle in this series because Boston is a better shooting team than Atlanta. They just are. Does that mean they're going to win every game like that? No. But I implore you to watch the first half and just realize that it was not just three-point shooting. Yes, Boston shot a lot better than the Hawks did in the game. The Hawks had an unsustainably bad three-point night. They just did. They, they shot the ball poorly. And I think people that are listening to this podcast regularly will know I am not afraid to point out when a team result or when a game result has to, has a lot to do with shooting variance. Like there are nights where the Hawks have outplayed a team but missed every shot from three-point range. Or they have not outplayed a team, but they've actually won the game because they shot the heck out of the ball in that contest. It would help if the Hawks made shots. I am not discounting that. If your point differential in this game did matter, the Hawks were terrible from three. But Boston didn't like have this incredible shooting performance. They were really good in the first half. But them shooting 39% is very normal. They didn't have this like, scalding 23-point game like they did in the regular season. So that's part of this is too. And I can't explain to you how bad the Hawks were defensively in the first half and not just from three. They were allowing layups like in the half court. It was really rough. So the Hawks got going later on, and it could kind of trick you a little bit. Again, I'm not going to go through the entire game state again, but I think that, number one, yes, it matters that the Hawks were so poor shooting-wise in that game. Number two, they're going to get better, you would think, over the course of a series, they were unsustainably bad in that game, but there were other issues. It was not just that. And I promise you, it matters that the Hawks were better in the second half as well, and they were better across the board. But uh, between the deficit at halftime and the way the game state kind of changed, Boston was kind of playing more prevent ball in the second half, that all matters. So I think it can, be, it can be instructive that the Hawks played so much better after halftime. And I was never as low on the Hawks' chances in the series as some people were. That hasn't changed for me. Um, I think the odds, and we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast, kind of, I think, changed too much in this series based on the reactions to game one. I think some of the talking points that I'm seeing nationally and even locally about how this series is over and it was never going to be competitive, like it's still one game. 
I was pretty clear about that as well. It was at least encouraging to me that the Hawks did not roll over in the second half when they could have. They could have just packed it in and lost by 30 or lost by 40. And they did. They played hard. They played well in the second half. So I'll leave it there for now. But I think that, um, you know, it does it, it does instruct some things. The Hawks were able to kind of settle in a little bit. So it does matter to the question from Oswaldo. Um, a lot of things were better. I think they were really better at much, pretty much everything in the second half, other than maybe offensive rebounding. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a positive performance. But at the same time, there is stuff to look at in the future. And I think that game two will tell us even more. And uh, I would just look a little bit beyond three-point shooting differential, even though, and just by the way, boss is just better at three-point shooting than the Hawks. So they can't operate as if those teams are on the same plane. Will the gap be as big in game two? I would certainly guess not. But there you go. It was much more than that in game one. All right, we'll get into more of your questions in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Game Time. If you've ever been trying to find tickets to a big event at the last minute, it could be really incredibly stressful and probably not the best idea for your emotions or your wallet. After all, buying tickets should be not a hassle at all. And with Game Time, you have the fastest and easiest way to buy tickets for sports and music and comedy and theater. And with killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can avoid stress, start getting hyped for the fun that you're going to have at the event. Spring is, of course, here. And there are lots of events happening around me and I'm sure around you at this point in time as well. With Game Time, you can get flash deals on last minute tickets and it's so easy to find and buy tickets for any kind of event. You can see the image of where your seat's going to be and they have protection if your event happens to get canceled forget playing months in advance there are tickets available right up to the day of the event at game time and the game time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price if you find tickets in the same section and the same row for less game time will credit you 110 of the difference between those two tickets and it's, it's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason you can buy tickets just a matter of seconds plus those tickets will actually be sent directly to your phone it is very easy and convenient through that lens Get it all without the stress at Game Time. Download the Game Time app right now, create an account, and use the promo code Locked On NBA for twenty dollars off your first purchase with Game Time. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem that promo code Locked On NBA for twenty dollars off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, I grouped some questions together about the rotation, and I will answer them now. Number one comes from Gabriel, who says, "Is there any chance that a Kong will place more than Capella at any point in the series, and would that help things for the Hawks?" It's been a popular question. I do understand why that is. Uh, number one, I think that there is too much Capella disdain or skepticism, basically, from Hawks fans in general. And a lot of that could be just excitement about a Kongwu. And there's this desire or just, I guess, reflection or reflex to uh, pit them together. Uh, or I guess you want against one another. I wouldn't necessarily do that. And I think that um, this matchup does, on paper, kind of favor a Kongwu a little bit more than Capella because Boston plays a little bit smaller a little bit more on the perimeter and Kongwu is obviously more um, flexible on the perimeter and quicker than Capella at this point in time. But I would not overlook Capella. Number one, the thing is he's still their best rebounder by a lot. He's their best communicator on defense. He's the guy that sets them up defensively and he's not a bad guy in space. Like for, for a center, Capella is still above average in playing in space. Now he's not as good as, as a Kongwu in space because Kongwu is that's probably his number one asset as a defender is that he's really flexible and versatile and perimeter oriented. But the reality is, from game one in particular, and it's just, it's just one game, but Capella was a lot better than the Kongwu in game one. It wasn't particularly close. Now, a lot of that was because the Kongwu really struggled in kind of a surprising way, and I think he'll be better the rest of the series, but he did not play well in game one. Capella wasn't perfect either, and I think part of the problem here is that Boston makes Capella's life difficult because he's got, he, he, has to, he has to defend Al Horford a lot, and that means playing on the perimeter and there's nobody under the rim. That's not Capella's fault, but matchup-wise, it's tough for him. So anyway... I think on paper, Kongwu's versatility would be very helpful in this series. He's going to play a big role. Capella is a tricky fit against some Boston lineups that have five out, but there is still a path to all of that. Plus, the Hawks could realistically decide at some point to maybe even go smaller and play like Collins at center. 
because they might want to just kind of keep up with Boston in some respects. So to answer the question more plainly, I think there's definitely a chance that a Kongwu plays more than Capella in a game or two in the series. But game one, that didn't happen, nor should it have, honestly, with the way Kongwu was playing. I think there's probably a scenario in which a Kongwu is just playing so well that Quinn kind of rolls with him. That is kind of the way things have gone when the Hawks have changed their rotation. It's because they're kind of riding a little bit of a hot hand. And Okongwu and Capella don't play a ton different minutes, generally speaking. Capella plays more starts, all that stuff. But Okongwu has played more than Capella in a game or two this year. That could happen in the series. That wouldn't surprise me. But as far as like the plan is concerned, I think the, the plan is probably going to be Capella moving forward, being still the slight advantage in terms of minutes. And I think Capella was better in game one. So we'll see how that goes in game two. Uh, question from Arthur, who says, you anticipate any, any major rotation changes for game two or where they kind of stay put after game one? If I had to guess, I would say it's pretty similar to game one. Now, that could be different. There's always a chance that they have a, a wrinkle that I'm not seeing. They maybe could play a little bit more small ball. Maybe they push their minutes a little bit higher for guys that are key, especially with things potentially not being so lopsided in the first half. Maybe you ride the hot hand with Bogey if he's got it going. Maybe you ride the hot hand with Sadiq Bey if he has it going. Uh, if Collins is struggling, uh, we see him kind of rest a little bit more. Uh, Jalen Johnson could be a guy that kind of commands more playing time. It's, there's there's some obvious flexibility, but as far as like the actual plan going into the game, I think it's going to be the same nine guys if I had to guess. Um, again, Lauren Williams passed along that Jalen Johnson seems to be fine after leaving the game on on Saturday. As long as he is healthy, I think he would probably play. And he had some he had some nice moments in game one. He struggled some as well, and they were not guarding him. Uh, crucially in that game, Boston was not defending him on the perimeter. But I think that um, there could be a major shakeup coming. Um, I would probably guess no to that for game two. Maybe if they lose game two and they go into game three, realizing that they're such a huge underdog, they might want to get a little bit more creative. But I think for now, as far as the question is concerned, I would say no to the major changes, although certainly some tweaks could be in the offing because uh, it's a playoff series and you cannot afford to wait too long to go ahead and make, make those changes if you think they are the best thing for you. Last thing on the rotation front, a question from Fred about AJ Griffin, who says, is it AJ Griffin time, basically? Um, and this uh, question also says, this seems like a series for him maybe against Boston's wings. Um, I'll say this. I would not mind trying AJ Griffin in this series. I do understand why they haven't. Uh, what I did in game one, he hasn't been playing much lately at all when they're fully healthy. Um, for one thing, teams usually don't play more guys in the playoffs, and the Hawks have been pretty much always showing their hand with playing nine when fully healthy and not having AJ be that ninth. Um, I think Quinn playing 10 guys in a playoff game would kind of surprise me without any weird like foul trouble or injuries, et cetera. If this was AJ two years from now, or even a year from now, I think he would be playing. And I think he would be a good matchup against Boston in some ways because he is a wing with some good size, physicality and shooting. And theoretically, they definitely need that against Boston. But I think right now, the biggest question, it's not a huge surprise if you've been paying attention all year long, is that AJ's defense is not there yet. And I think obviously there are, he's not the only one that has that problem. I think, you know, clearly bogey is not a great defender. We all kind of know that, but as far as like, they're not going to just pull bogey. They're not going to pull guys who are more established in this setting. So for AJ to get on the court, they have to trust his defense. And I'm not sure they do. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't at this point based on, based on him not playing at this stage, um, especially playing with the bench unit. You know, Quinn likes to have those bench guys out there together. And I think defensively you put him out there with bogey and Bay and Jalen or something like that. Um, a lot of questions. You know, Jalen's obviously a, a very toolsy and physical and good defender already, but he had, he makes mistakes. AJ's gonna make mistakes. Young guys make mistakes defensively. And yeah, if they go out, if they go to AJ, there is some upside there because he might just get hot for you and make three or four threes in a quarter, and that can really be huge. But I think that we've seen so far that they're not quite to the point where they're gonna lean on him heavily. If he comes into game two, I will not be surprised. I'll say that now because the Hawks lost game one. 
that they want to be a little, a little bit more creative, just try something. I think probably with a short leash in the first half if they were to do that. But I, and I think I do think that the Hawks need to embrace being the underdog, even if they won't say that publicly, and just try some stuff that has higher upside. I guess the team that's obviously better than them, but I wouldn't make on that. After everything we've seen for the rotation recently, Quinn's comments, all of that, I think that AJ probably doesn't play a lot, but we'll see if that changes. And I, I do think that people are kind of envisioning, and this happens, this happens with Jalen as well. Um, and it's a very natural thing. I'm not even picking on it, but fans kind of envision what these guys are going to be versus what they are right now. And I think Jalen's a good example of this too. I think people are always wondering why he's not playing more. It's because he makes mistakes and it's because he's a young guy. And look, the, the ceiling is super high on Jalen Johnson and the flashes are great. He still makes mistakes. AJ is kind of the same thing, different skill set than Jalen, of course. But young guys, there's a reason why they get kind of excised in the playoffs, that kind of, especially for a team that's trying to win, that has some veterans, has some real depth. So uh, that's kind of explains all of that. And I think, yeah, two years from now, you're going to see a ton of AJ and a ton of Jalen, maybe even next year as well, but maybe not so much of those guys at this point in time. All right, question from Simon. Changing gears here. It seems like uh, this is a question from Simon. It seems like a pretty accurate DeJounte Murray game with the rest of the series. Sorry, with the rest of the season in game one. Am I on the right track in thinking that that kind of lines up? Um, I think it's kind of true that it was kind of a encapsulation of DeJounte this year. Not perfectly by any means, but he led the team with 24 points. That's good. But he needed 27 shooting possessions to get there. So he was not efficient as a scorer. And that's the thing about DeJounte dating back to San Antonio this year. He's never been efficient. And that's one of the knocks on him. And I think a, a rightful one on Murray. He's never, found, he's never found the path to being a high usage, high volume scorer who's actually efficient as well. He has below average efficiency as a scorer. Uh, he took a lot of mid-range pull-ups in the first half. Some of them not great shots. I didn't think he made a few. He made a few of them, and that's the thing. When Murray looks good, when he's making his shots from mid-range, he looks unstoppable. And I think people kind of align their uh, sort of attach themselves to that. And he did score in this game, but also defensively, he had a lot of trouble in this series. Now, I'll give him this: he's defending Jalen Brown. That's a hard matchup. Jalen Brown is a lot bigger than him. Jalen Brown's an all-star level player, so that's a tough matchup. But he had a lot of trouble against Brown. And it was not only his matchup in the game, but Murray's defense all year long. I've been saying it. I don't, I don't mean to be negative about it. He's been a disappointment pretty clearly defensively. If you've been watching him all year long, it's pretty obvious to me that he is not a plus defender, which he was billed as. And even then, I think he's been a minus defender for the Hawks this year. He still makes plays. Even then, he had three steals in game one. He does make those. He has good hands. He'll make some plays in passing lanes. That's not the worst. That's, not, that's obviously very helpful. But on the ball, he is really rough. And I think that the fact that he was not efficient in game one, while carrying a big workload, that's also a Murray staple. I don't want to harp on it again, but defensively, it's not it's not very good. So yeah, that, those kind of archetypes, those those pillars about Murray's game. Yes, he can score. Yes, he's a good passer. He had six assists and one turnover. That's a very good ratio. Eight, eight rebounds. He does some supporting things well, but inefficient scoring and questionable defense, but also on high usage and scoring is yes, it's kind of a Murray game for this season. So he's capable of a big game at some point in the series. I think the Hawks were to win it. They're going to need Murray to kind of have one of those big ones, especially when Trey doesn't have it one night or something like that. Murray is very capable of going off for 35 points in a game or just having a great, a great game overall. So I'm not trying to be super low on Ajante Murray, but yeah, to the question, it was kind of the encapsulation of what Murray has been. Not terrible by any means. He does help them in sort of raising their floor with Trey struggling or off the floor. And Trey was struggling in game one when that happens. You do need Murray, and that's why one of the reasons why the Hawks went and got Murray is as, as a reaction to the Miami series, another guy who can sort of create their own offense. And he does do that. He's just not particularly efficient. And then defensively, it's a challenge for him because it's not his fault that he has to guard Jalen Brown. On a different team, Murray would probably be having to guard Marcus Smart or Derek White. But on the Hawks, he and Hunter have to guard 
Brown and Tatum, probably. I mean, they could maybe try Collins on Tatum and put Hunter on Brown in those scenarios in the starting lineup. But, you know, even behind them, you got Bay maybe can try to guard Tatum. Um, Bogey on either one of them is not great. So, like, it's not Murray's fault that there are other issues on the perimeter for the Hawks defensively, but he was billed as and acquired as and talked up as by the front office this um, game-changing defender, and he's just not that. So that's that's part of the problem as well. Anyway, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, a couple more questions to get to. I promise you we have, I think we have three or four more. Yeah, three or four more on, that are coming on the podcast. But uh, one last break here from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more on the Hawks in between game one and game two. Today's show is brought to you by Price Picks. If you're into fantasy sports like I am, make sure you check out the award-winning app at Price Picks. Price Picks Daily Fantasy made easy. It's amazing. I know that you will love it as well as I do. It's so very easy to use. I've been playing there for quite a while now. It's really a breeze to operate at Price Picks. All you have to do is pick two six players, actually choose whether they have more or less than a certain number of points or rebounds or steals, et cetera. And at Price Picks, what if 25 times the money on your entry? 25 times. That's a lot. And they offer numbers to all the sports that you might enjoy and think of at this point. Beyond the NBA, of course, they also have college basketball and the NFL, college football, MLB, NHL, PGA, soccer, esports, and much more. An entire entry can be done just a minute or less. It's that quick and it's that easy. Plus, it's just you against the numbers. They have safe and fast withdrawals at Price Picks, and they're operating in more than 30 states and Canada. Done with the Price Picks app right now. Go to PricePix.com to sign up and play Dan Fantasy Sports. And if you're a first time user with Price Picks, get 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code locked on. Don't forget that promo code. It is locked on at sign up. Raise the deposit match up to $100. Check it out now at Price Picks. All right, a question from Virgo Life on YouTube. And it was a mailbag question about basically, uh, have you heard anything about Trey Young's shoulder, whether it's bothering him either right now or this year? Um, I haven't heard that. I'll say that. I, I, I think Trey, like a lot of guys, is probably banged up this time of year. Um, he's, he has been on the injury report twice this year with left shoulder soreness and once with right shoulder soreness. He missed one of those games, but it was the back-to-back in Denver where they didn't play anybody. So I'm not sure that was actually the injury that kept him out of the game in that one. Um, I think they mostly just pulled everybody. On one hand, he is kind of prone to getting banged up because he is so small and he has the huge workload, uh, lots of contact, et cetera, draws fouls. But on the other hand, he's really tough, does not like to miss games and has played a lot of games. So like credit to Trey, I think he's done a good job staying healthy. He's been very durable over his career so far. And I think if he's hurt, you don't really hear him say he's hurt um, either. So um, I don't know anything about the shoulder in, inside info wise. He's not listed in the injury report that I've seen. Obviously, game two could be different. We've not we're recording this podcast before the game two injury report comes out again. But I think maybe the question comes from, and he didn't say this because of the poor shooting from Trey the last couple of weeks. That has been a problem. I wouldn't attribute that to shooting uh, to, to the shoulder necessarily. But um, just to answer the question, I don't know. But uh, he's been listed on, on the injury report with shoulder stuff throughout the year. Some other stuff too. He's kind of been banged up off and on all year long, illnesses, all that stuff. So he's been kind of gutting it out. But I think uh, this time of year, Basically, even if you are quote-unquote full strength, no one's healthy right now. Everyone that's been playing for 82 games is probably not 100% healthy, and maybe that goes for Trey as well. Question from Theo, who says, Assuming Trey Young is number one on this list, is DeAndre Hunter number two on the most important player list in the series? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I do understand the theory of it. For one, Hunter is their best wing defender. Um, that's a low bar, I'll say, but he is the best one defender. And this is a series against Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So obviously that puts a lot of pressure on DeAndre Hunter. He guarded Tatum as the primary matchup in game one. Tatum mostly did what he wanted to against Hunter. Hunter did not, Hunter did not play well at all, especially in the first half, but he was really not good in the whole game. Um, better in the second half for sure. But And that kind of aligned with the Hawks' entire ethos after halftime. That they were better as a team, and so was he. There's a lot of Hunter discourse right now. I'm not going to do the whole thing on this podcast, but I get why. Part of that is that he's not a standout player. Like he's, 
I think he's people are too low on him right now, and I get why. But he can be frustrating, and that's part of the deal. He has a sticker price as well of being a former top five pick who just signed a pretty big extension. And I think that affects the, the way that some people, not everybody, but some people view him. I personally try to uh, separate contract and circumstances from how a guy is actually playing, which is maybe why I'm a little bit uh, loath to be like super critical of Hunter, but he's not, he's not that good. That's a, that's a reality. Now on the other side, he's a six, eight forward who can shoot and defend. And that guy in general is in high demand. Uh, I've also pointed this out a number of times. I, wanna, I will avoid the rabbit hole for now, but uh, his $90 million contract, $90 million over four years is not what it used to be. He's making basically normal starter money. I understand people are kind of attributing that. Um, same thing happened with Collins. People are like, oh, he's making 20 blank million dollars. That does not mean what you think it means in some in some ways. So the contract is a different discussion that we'll save for another time, but he's not great on the ball, but he's fine. He's not spectacular off the ball, but he's gotten a lot better there. He's been very helpful. Um, I do wish he would just probably take a little bit more of a low usage role on offense, uh, more spot up threes, et cetera. That's been the case for three, four years. I thought that, but I do think he's very important in this series to bring the question back because you know, look, the Hawks can't win this series with Hunter playing like he did, in the, especially in the first half of game one, but really overall in game one, he was terrible in, in the first half. Again, better in the second half, but still not good overall. And because of this roster construction, for better or worse, they've pinned a lot of hopes and dreams and, and logistics on DeAndre Hunter because Look, behind him, you got Bogey. You've got Bay, who has been better defensively the last few weeks, but is not a great defender. And if you want to go any further than that, it's AJ Griffin. Yes, Jalen Johnson has been doing a good job, and he's been defending more in the perimeter in recent days, but he's still not playing a, a huge a huge role. He's still very young. He's still kind of getting his feet wet for the, for the first real time as a perimeter defender in the NBA after playing a lot of big defense the first year and a half of his career. So uh, they need Hunter. They're not, there's no way I've seen lots of calls to just bench him and go to whoever they're not going to do that, nor should they, I think they just need Hunter to be better. And that's very simple, but it's also very true. I think that people are piling on a little bit too much, but I'm the guy who used to get yelled at for saying that Hunter was not worth what they gave up for him. And I, I didn't love the trade and never did. I said that often repeatedly on the show when the baby Kawhi thing was happening, I was pushing back on that. Uh, when people got really excited about him in, in year two. And now I think I'm higher than everybody else on Hunter. And part of that's that I think I know around the league what the value is of a 6'8 guy who can shoot and defend. That doesn't mean he's a great player because he's not. He's just not. I think that's that's reality at this point. We're in year four. Could that change? Maybe. But uh, and he's had a, it's kind of crazy to say this. He's had his best year of his career. And I think pretty clearly he was durable for the most part. He was a starting level player this year for the Hawks. But um, as far as this, season, as, as this series is concerned, the discourse has become kind of toxic and I get why it's kind of the microscope of the playoffs and all that stuff. But simply put, as far as the importance level, I don't know if he's number two on the list. And I do agree that Trey's number one, by the way, I think the Hawks cannot win with Trey playing the way he played in game one. That's just full stop. But Hunter could be number two. It's not an unreasonable premise. He might be as far as the importance. It doesn't mean he's their best player because he's not. Hunter, I think is probably more like their fifth or sixth best player, to be honest. But as far as importance on this series, given the matchup, given the opponent, given the Hawks available talent, they do need Hunter to be good in the series, and he was not in game one. Uh, one more question. This is actually, uh, I have one more Hawks thing at the, at the very end. This is, this is a non-Hawks question, but it comes from Levi, who says, what was the biggest surprise from the first playoff weekend for you outside of the Hawks? Um, there's two games happening tonight on Monday, so I'm going to leave those out of this for uh, just listening performances. But, you know, Philly blew out the Nets. Not a surprise there. Sacramento won a close game in, in Golden State. Uh, sorry, at home against Golden State. That's not a hugely surprising result. Um, Sacramento is the home team in that series. I know Golden State was a huge favorite in the series, but uh, them winning a close game is not a surprise. Um, 
the tough thing across the board in the NBA right now is all the injuries that happened on Saturday and Sunday. Giannis, John Morant, Tyler Hero, et cetera. I would have been surprised about Miami winning in Milwaukee like they did, but Giannis played 11 minutes. So, like, without Giannis, they're not the same team. I will go with the Lakers, I guess, is my answer to this. Winning in Memphis, but not because they won. That would not have been a huge surprise. They weren't big underdogs in the game, but how they won. Uh, I will say, uh, just before I get to Memphis quickly, I think some people will point to New York winning in Cleveland or the Clippers winning in Phoenix, but I actually picked those series to be pretty long series, and I was not surprised by either one of those results, honestly. So the fact that um, Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura were the ones that led the victory for the, for the Lakers in crunch time, they had like a 15-0 run in the fourth quarter. Like, that's a little bit weird. Them winning the game, not huge, not hugely surprising, but honestly, nothing too crazy, knock on wood, happened in the first weekend of, his, of the playoffs. There was not a, a, a stunning result to me. Any, all the way across the board when you factor in injuries and all that stuff. So to answer the question, not a ton of surprises, but uh, I think uh, Rui having the game of his uh, Lakers tenure was kind of surprising. Austin Reeves screaming, I'm him at the end of a game was not what I had on my, on my big old card. But look, Reeves has been awesome for a little while now. So that's, uh, that's a lot of fun for the Lakers. Anyway, last thing on the Hawks front uh, comes from Patty, who says, can you explain the gambling odds that you reference on the podcast? I heard you talk about the Celtics being a big favorite. We knew that, but I don't really get the rest of it. Okay, so I'll be a little bit short on this, but uh, I'll explain more here. As of when I'm recording this podcast on Monday afternoon, the Hawks, according to our friends at FanDuel, are obviously massive underdogs in this series. They have the Celtics at minus 2,500 and the Hawks at plus 1,200 to win the series. What that means is if you bet $100 on the Hawks to win the series, you would win 1,200 if they were to win. That's a huge payout, obviously. On the other side, you have to bet 2,500 on Boston to win 100, which means they are huge, huge favorites. Um, this is not always a perfect translation, but if you were to translate Boston being a minus 2,500 favorite in the series into a percentage, the implied odds of Boston winning by the by these uh, by, by these uh, betting numbers would be that Boston wins the series about 96% of the time. That's obviously a very large percentage. Some other things there, by the way, according to our friends at FanDuel, the most likely number of games in the series, according to FanDuel, is five followed by four, and then six, and then seven. Boston is a minus 240 favorite to win the series in five games or less, which basically means that Boston has to win the series for those odds to be right um, in four or five games about 70% of the time. That's not a, not a lot of respect there for the Hawks, obviously. Um, Sportsline, where I do some work over at CBS, has the Hawks with a 7.1% chance to win the series right now, which actually makes Atlanta a good value according to the betting odds. That's obviously not a huge percentage, but they're a little bit higher on the Hawks' chances than the than betting market actually is. And uh, right now, again, pre-injury reports on Monday afternoon, the Hawks are 10.5-point underdogs at FanDuel for Game 2, almost the same as Game 1. They were 10-point underdogs in Game 1. I said it on the last podcast, but I'll just say it again now. The Hawks were never 10.5-point underdogs all year long. They were 10-point underdogs in Denver on a back-to-back -back with a lot of guys out. So this would be the biggest spread of the year for the Hawks if it were to hold. And um, – Look, the odds of the Hawks winning the series get even worse if they can't win in game two. But keep in mind, look, the Hawks are big underdogs in this game it's for a reason. And I think it's it's in Boston. The odds get a lot better for the Hawks to win individual games when they're played in Atlanta. That seems pretty obvious to say, but it also is true. I think the Hawks will probably be like, I don't know, four-point underdogs, five-point underdogs in game three, something like that. So it won't be a huge, huge, huge spread. Anyway, the Hawks are, I think, very capable of winning games in this series. Will they win the series? I would say probably not, but I would not say definitely not. I've, I've always been a little bit higher, it seems like, than the mainstream consensus on whether the Hawks have a chance to be competitive in the series. They do. The Hawks have a high upside, but 
They also are a 41-41 team, and uh, that kind of really re- sort of reared its ugly head in game one in the first half. So we'll see how they play, but we'll have a full breakdown of the game, as always, on this podcast after game two on Tuesday evening. I implore you to subscribe to the podcast across podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, all those fun places on the audio side. And then we're also on the video side over at YouTube, where you can leave uh, subscriptions and likes, all that fun stuff as well. Please rate and review the podcast. Click the auto-download button across podcast platforms. People always ask me how to support the show in the best way. Number one on that list is downloading and clicking the podcast multiple times even. Subscribe, unsubscribe, do those creative tactics to improve these podcasts standing. Also, follow the show on Twitter at Lots on Hawks. Follow me on Twitter at BT Roland. Follow also my Patreon written work on the Hawks, patreon.com slash BT Roland. If you want to throw a dollar or two on that, I would not be uh, opposed to that, obviously, at this point in time. But I do appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. And we have some, new, some newest this time of year. Hopefully, you enjoyed this mailbag deep dive. I have a guest tentatively planned for in between game two and game three. So fingers crossed on that. But I'll be back in solo, normal fashion after game two. Stay tuned, and we'll see you on Tuesday evening.